the only negative I have about the entire morning is you put a guy up here to preach and put running water in front of him. <clears throat> I may have to take a break here halfway through. Y'all join me in a word of prayer as we prepare our hearts to look at the Lord's word this morning. Father, we thank you so much for just being here already today. We thank you for the opportunity to pray and praise you through song to, to give. And we thank you for this exciting opportunity, Lord, that you have challenged the church to, to make a difference to your glory and to your honor by meeting a very basic need of your people. Father, we know that you call us to have hearts of generosity, and every day we're called to make a difference in some way. And we know, Lord, that often for those of us in the church, there are barriers that stand in the way of that happening. We have attitudes that maybe aren't quite as godly as they should be, or we're afraid of giving away too much of our resources, or we're distracted by other things that are going on in our life, whatever it might be. We pray today that that, Father, not only would you just challenge us to this very specific calling that you've given this church to make a difference in the global water crisis, but we also pray that you would challenge us each individually to just have that heart of generosity every day, to be able to make a difference in the lives of people that you place in our paths, to overcome those barriers so that you will be glorified, that basic needs will be met, and as a result, people will know that you love them because we show them your love. We pray for every person in here today that, Lord, you would use them in a way that makes a difference. We'll give you the glory and the honor and the praise, and it's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. As I was preparing for the Water Sunday today and, and trying to figure out what God would like me to share, the first thing that kept coming back to me was the question, when was the last time you were thirsty? And if you think about that for a minute and just kind of put that scene in your head or that memory in your head, I'll, I'll share with you, for me, what came to me was two-a-day football practices in high school in August. And I'll never forget that the way they gave us a drink of water was they had a, a pipe that they drilled holes in and put a water hose on the end of. And and when we would get incredibly thirsty, then we would all go and, and just lean over that pipe and, and stick our lips on that rusty pipe, whatever it took, to, to get a drink of water. And it was incredibly refreshing, and it was awesome to know that you were going to have that drink. And the other thing that came to my mind was putting up hay with my grandpa and my uncle on their farms in the summer. And some of you have done that. And just to be so incredibly thirsty that your mouth was incredibly dry and it was so hot and it was just sticky, yucky, and, and, and yet you knew that when you got a break you were going to go over and, and out of that cooler you were going to get a, 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 a real cool, refreshing, clean drink of water. And, and if you think about those times in your life when you were thirsty, you might kind of resonate with my thoughts, and that is, although it was a bad experience, I had never ever tasted water that tasted so good when I was so thirsty. Because the, for me, I always knew that there was that cool, clean, refreshing 
drink of water whenever we broke from those two-a-day practices. I knew that someone had a cooler full of water when we were out there putting up hay. And so I had this hope in the midst of the thirst that it wasn't going to be too long and I would get that drink, I would get that cool water, I would get that clean water. I begin to think about our brothers and sisters in the world who know thirst every single day, who who know that same kind of thirst or that worse thirst than what I've ever known in my life, and yet they don't have that hope. As a matter of fact, if they have access to any water at all, as, as has been shared so well with us today, they know that when they take a drink, they're risking their life. They know that they don't have any clean water to drink, that, that it is going to hurt them eventually, but they know it's the only choice they have. The statistic that just jumped out at me that Jared shared with you this morning was that half of all the hospital beds in the world, think about that, half of all the hospital beds in the world are filled with people who are there because of waterborne illnesses. Frankly, when you think about the access that you and I have to water, when you think about the blessings that you and I have, this is completely unacceptable. And it brings us to a scripture that I want us to look at today that might help us with some of our attitudes and, and help kind of break down some barriers we have when it comes to helping in ways that really make a difference. Go to Exodus chapter 17 with me this morning. We're going to start in, chapter, in verse 1 and, and read through verse 7. It says this. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? And then the Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massahah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Again, I would like you to think a little bit about when was the last time that you were thirsty. This is an amazing story in the midst of a bigger story. This story of Israel, Israel, the Israelites being, being taken to the promised land and of their wandering around and of all their journeying together of the exodus from their captivity in Egypt. And, and yet it's a story that's been repeated within this larger story. Over and over again, they have basic needs that God has promised to meet, and, and, and yet they become afraid when that need is not met, and they become panicked when that need is not met, and, and they begin to quarrel and grumble and complain and say, it'd be better for us to be back in captivity. As a matter of fact, if you look back just one chapter before this, it's when they're dying of hunger, and they're so hungry, and God gives them miraculously the manna from heaven to be able to satisfy them. And in all of these stories within this big story, there, there are always kind of three main characters there. There's always Moses, this leader of the people that has been 
called by God. And Moses, I don't think, is quite as godly sometimes as we may give him credit. In other words, I think sometimes we always look at Moses' actions and we assume that he's almost always doing what God wants him to do. And I tend to think that Moses, a lot of times, does what Moses wants to do. And that Moses' words, a lot of times, are his own words. And so we have to kind of look at the Scripture and figure that out. Another character in the story is always the people of Israel, those who are together on this journey, trying to follow where God is leading them. And of course, the third character is God. And I want us to look at these three characters just, just briefly this morning to try to learn a little bit about missions and about our generosity and about those barriers that sometimes stand in the way of us really making the difference that we should make in the world. Did you hear the statistic this morning that what we spend on Christmas in America would solve the global water crisis? That what you and I spend would make a huge difference in the world if we just decided to drink clean water and not to drink. I love the idea of that, that fast for the week of, of any other drink to drink water. It is amazing what we could do. Why is it that we haven't done it? Why is it that, that we're not generous maybe as we should be? Well, well, let's look at these characters. First of all, there's these thirsty Israelites that had a genuine need. Now, if you're like me, when you first read this scripture, you begin to see the Israelites in a really bad, negative light, don't you? I mean, these are people who don't trust God. These are people who God has showed them over and over and over again that he's going to take care of them. But they hit a crisis and they begin to quarrel. And the place that, that they're at is even named for their quarrelsomeness. It's even named for their testing God in this situation. It's mentioned again in Numbers. It's mentioned again in 1 Corinthians. And so there is this attitude there that they're really not trusting God. And so we look at them and we think about these people. How could you, when you got the manna from heaven, how could you, when God had delivered you from Egypt, how could you continually keep on worrying about your basic needs? Don't you know God is going to meet those needs? But the thing we have to realize is they really did have a genuine need. Even though they really weren't trusting God for provision, even though the scripture makes it clear they were quote-unquote testing God, that, that the scripture makes it clear, clear that they were quarrelsome and had turned even downright nasty and bitter at times, we need to realize that they still had a genuine basic need. And the fact is that none of us at our best when we are in a desperate state of fear. Listen to me. None of us are at our best when we are in a desperate state of fear. Imagine what the Israelites are going through. Yes, they've been fed by God, but they're dying of thirst. They have no water to drink. They look around and there is no place to get water to drink. And it's not just them, it's their children. It's their livestock or their livelihood. And they know that unless something happens, I'm going to die, my kids are going to die, my livestock are going to die, I'll have absolutely nothing less even, even if I live through this. How many of you have ever been in that situation? Where you looked around and if you didn't get something right now, right quick, your kids were going to die. I've never been there. I don't know what it's like to walk in their shoes. 
But I imagine if I were there, no matter how much God had done for me in the past, my humanness would probably cause me to become quite cranky. I would probably be a little quarrelsome. I probably wouldn't be the best that I could be. This kind of fear makes us act differently, I think. Many of you have been to Parchment Valley, our West Virginia Conference Center. I was there years ago at a family camp that we did at South Parkersburg Baptist Church, and it was late, it was midnight, and we had a bunch of teenagers that included two of my daughters and, and a bunch of other girls and several boys, and they were over on a hillside behind the lodges, out on a blanket, kind of laying there talking and looking at the stars. And a bunch of us adults that where basically all of their parents were standing in the road over by the lodges. And one of us got a great idea that, that Kevin Hanna, who was, was his daughters were over there as well, he was the caretaker there at Parchment Valley, that if he would run back to his house and get his coyote call and sneak down into the woods just about five or six yards from where they were on that blanket and fire off that coyote call, that it would be kind of cool to see what they did. And so he did. He went back and he even got his camo on and he snuck down through the woods and he set the coyote call up about 10 yards from where they laid on the blanket and we all stood over at the road sneaking and peeking around the corner of the lodges waiting for it and it goes off and you get this incredibly loud coyote cow that rings all down through the valley they had flashlights and they, you could hear them talking all of a sudden all the voices go completely silent and all the lights stop moving nobody moves nobody does anything they're just frozen in fright. And so he hits it again, and the second time that he hits it, everything changes. You hear yells and shrieks and lights going everywhere. And what happens is we're standing in the road and they're running back to the lodges. There were five boys with eight or nine girls, and all five boys beat every girl back to the road. <laughs> and this is the truth. They ran over one of the girls and twisted her ankles because they literally stomped on her running off the blanket. They were so afraid. Now, you like to think those guys were a little more polite than that if they weren't scared to death, right? But in their fear, it's amazing what we'll do. It's amazing how we change. Some of you probably are saying, well, what's that got to do with anything? Well, I've heard so many people, when you're talking about people who have a basic need, say they're going to have to justify to me that they're a different kind of person before I serve them. If we're working with the homeless, they got to show us that they're not going to spend that money on alcohol. they got to show us that they're not going to waste that money that we give them. We have all of these things we do because we put these conditions on how people have to act and who they have to be before we'll serve them. And yet, praise God, he never put any of those conditions on me. Now, he calls us to be holy. He calls us to be different when we're following him. But we should not... Discount the fact that we have never walked in the shoes of these people. Moses is a second character. I think Moses has a response that is often like the response that you and I give when we see someone has a basic need. Listen to what he says. I love this phrasing and I looked at it in several different versions. And, and he says this, he says, what am I to do with these people? They're going to stone me. You see, Moses' concern in the midst of this is for him. How is 
their basic needs not being met going to affect me. Well, what am I going to do with these folks so that they don't kill me, so that they don't rebel against me, so that they don't stone me? I was in a deacon's meeting one time in South Parkersburg Baptist Church, used to be right across the street from where the Greyhound bus station decided they were going to put a substation in a people's news. And so every day we had people wandering in the church wanting something. Every day, because people who knew we knew who we were wanted us to give them something, meet their needs some way. I wasn't born yesterday. I know a lot of those people were taking advantage of us. A lot of those people were using and abusing us. And it's not smart to let that happen. You have to have systems and stuff in, in place. But on the principle of the thing, we were in a discussion at a deacon's meeting one night. And one of our deacons said this. He said, I believe that God has given us all of our resources and we need to justify every dollar we give away. And there's another deacon in there that said, I'm not sure that we might not have that backwards. Maybe we should justify every dollar we don't give away. Maybe we should have to prove that we have the right to keep every dollar we keep rather than working so hard to prove that we should, that everybody deserves the money and the service and the other things we do that we give them away. Our response to the basic needs of people in the world can often be very selfish. <coughs> Moses enjoyed, it seems, at times in Israelites' history, smiting the people, striking them down. And it seems like maybe even in this case, he was thinking, God, give me some way to deal with these people who are quarrelsome and who are burdensome. And yet, God enters the scene and he says, I'm a God who meets the needs of my people. Moses, rather than smiting the people, I want you to come up here where I'm standing beside this rock and I want you to smite this rock with your staff and I'm going to give these people who are thirsty something to drink. In other words, Moses, God doesn't really answer Moses' question, what am I going to do with these people? He changes the question and gives a different answer. And he says, I'm going to show you what you're going to do for these people. Not what you're going to do with them, but what you're going to do for them. And that shouldn't surprise any of us, because we already know that this is who God is, and this is what God does. We know Mark 10, 45, that when Jesus said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, we know if we've been in church for any amount of time that he instructs us to follow that example, that he serves us and he calls us to serve his people. And in the end, God uses Moses' obedience to serve the people. Moses says, okay, and he goes up there by that rock and he strikes the rock with his staff like God commanded him to do. And the people had something to drink and this is our call today this is the call in the midst of the global water crisis even if you say well it really doesn't affect me and I don't really know anybody personally that it affects so why should I be involved well that's exactly why you should be involved because it doesn't affect you because you're so much more blessed than these brothers and sisters we have in the world because you are the vessel through which God says go smite that rock I have people in my world who are in need. They need something to drink. You say you follow me, be obedient, and go serve them in a way that makes a difference in their life. 
And this is really the calling of our life. To be obedient to God and to love his people in tangible ways that allows us an opportunity to share his love and to share that gospel. I've told you all before about my grandfather who was the greatest influence on my life growing up. <clears throat> my grandfather, one time I was walking around with him and, and uh, we were talking about the old days, his old days, way before I was around. And he used to be a, a, a carried the mail. He was a postman, and and um, he said, "Oh, he said, I, I can remember this day." And he started to cry. And, and I, I said, "Well, Grandpa, what's wrong?" And he said, well, "I remember this day." And, and he began to tell about this guy who was known as quote unquote the town drunk. And he sat on a street corner in the same place almost every day, and he begged people for money. And every day my grandfather would go by, and he said he would ask me for money, and I knew what he was doing with it. But he said, I always kind of figured that when God called me to be generous, it wasn't my responsibility on what he was doing with it. It was my responsibility to be generous. And so he said, every day I gave him money. And he said, one day I walked by, and he asked me if I had money. He said, I looked him right in the eye, and I said, no. And I was like, well. And he just cried. He said, you don't understand. I did. I said, you did what? He said, I did have money. This was 40 years ago. And he said, I've never got over the fact that I lied to that man who was in need when God had given me so much. And I'm thinking, Grandpa, whoo, I've lied in the last day. You know? <laughs> you lied for the last time 40 years ago, and it's bothering you. Because you didn't meet those needs. Man, oh man, oh man, don't we need those kind of people in our world today. Luke 12, 47 and 48. That servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. That's kind of harsh, isn't it? But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. That's still pretty harsh. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. In the end, the question really in this whole generosity thing is, how much have you been given? And how much do you give? God doesn't ask you. He demands of you that you're generous. I took kids on mission trips for a long, long time. And then I took adults on mission trips for a long, long time. And people will say, what's so special about a mission trip? Isn't it a waste of money that could be used in different ways? Yes, I agree with that. I agree that we could do a lot of good with the money that we send Americans to other places to do very little good in a week. But the thing that people don't realize is that that group that goes, something always happens. They become more generous. If you debrief at the end of a trip, you can have the most rebellious, rowdy teenagers in the world. And at the end of that trip, they're humble and they want to give things away. And they call and apologize to their parents for the way they behave. All this stuff happens there because what is it that happens on that trip? Well, here's what I believe. I believe because on a mission trip, you are intentional about just serving others in the name of God and serving Him every single day. And when you do that, it makes a difference. And the question is, why in the world don't we do that back home? Why does it flip back to me? 
Why do I become more important when for that two weeks or that one week, I'm there for everybody but me and for my Lord? How many of you have been on a mission trip? Raise your hand. How many of you would say it's probably the best week of your life? Bunch of hands still up. Kind of sad, really, in a lot of ways, isn't it? We ought to be doing that every day. A few quotes. I slept and dreamt that life was joy. I woke and saw that life was service. I acted and behold, service was joy. The best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. The highest form of worship is the worship of unselfish Christian service. The greatest form of praise is the sound of consecrated feet seeking out the lost and the helpless. Sometimes we want to justify everything we hold on to. We have a lot of reasons why we deserve it. A lot of justifications for why we don't give it to someone else. Even to the point where we smite others and say, well, if they really wanted help, they would find a job. If they really, you know, you've heard it, right? But God says, come up here where I'm at and give these people something to drink. It's not about what you're going to do with them. It's what you're going to do for them. Praise God for what you all of the churches are doing for this global water crisis. I pray that every one of you will think, what can I do for these people whose very basic needs are not met? Join me in a word of prayer.